Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. At Know It All, we aim to make you a know-it-all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. We have candid conversations about the education issues that impact your community and the real-life solutions to those issues that you face every day. Listen to us live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. or at any time from the comfort of your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education for all students. Keep up with me at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Today we are excited to be celebrating Black History Month. There has been plenty to talk about in the news lately, and our guest today will provide some insights and perspectives about what we've seen in the news and put it in context from a Black History Month standpoint. Call into the show with your own comments and questions at 347-202-0911. Dr. Natalie Hopkinson is a Washington, D.C.-based journalist, book author, and fellow with the Interactivity Foundation, which is a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization that brings public policy issues to the public for discussion. Jonathan Stitt is the National Coordinator at the Alliance for Educational Justice in D.C., and Amatula Mervin is a young adult leader with the Boston Youth Organizing Project. Good morning to you all. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. So let's jump right in. Django Unchained was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and starred Jamie Foxx and Kerry Washington. Um, possible spoiler alert here in case you haven't seen the movie. We'll try not to give away the ending. Uh, I want to listen to a clip of J- first Jamie Foxx discussing the movie and then Dick Gregory talking with We All Be TV about this controversy over the use of the N-word. A warning to parents, Dick Gregory does not hold back in his use of the N-word, so you may want to cover young ears. To me, the love story in the film was the most important thing. Because, of course, the danger and the guns and all of that, I said, man, but when people look at it, when you look at it, and, and, uh, uh, Gladiator or Braveheart or, you know, movies like that, it was about his woman. It's like, I, I told Quentin, I said, that's what I love about the script. You know what it is? I just want to get to my girl. I don't, I'm not going to be able to save slavery. I ain't going to be able to cure it. I'm not going to be able to make a person think one way or the other. But what I can do is I can make sure that my woman knows that she's safe. And that's the most important thing in cinema. And that's what Quentin feel and made sure that we got that. He just wanted, Jingles just wanted his girl. Yeah, all of this, I didn't have to kill nobody. If y'all did this, first plantation I went, she was there, the movie could have been over, we done went on and did our thing. I've seen the jingle unchanged, I've seen that 12 times, it's never in the history of Hollywood, have they ever made anything that freed the inside of me, the inside of me, I'm 80 years old man, I saw combo movies, I know black folks in combo movies, I'm looking at a, a western What's a love story? For those of you on that scene, you've never seen a love story about a black man and a black woman where it wasn't some old foul sex and foul white, huh? And Spike Lee can't appreciate that. That little thug ain't even seen the movie. Well, it, 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 it offended my ancestors, but when you did, she got to have it in some of them other thug movies you did. When you took Malcolm X and put a zoot suit on it, 
red hat, orange or other, did that offend your ancestors, punk? So you, you'll be getting the problem with Quentin Tarantino using the nigger, using the word nigger, you'll be using it to Wait it. a minute, hold it, wait a minute. Did you see Lincoln? Yeah, I see Lincoln. Did son. they use nigger there? Not, not okay. Is, uh, the, the, no, 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 no
and again, when we take a step back from the film and look at it and its place and in, in who it benefits, the, you know, the question of challenging white supremacy and, and all that stuff really looked good. But then at the end of the day, whose pockets did it enrich in? So, <laughs> so I don't know if right. I'll see it again, but I did enjoy watching it. <laughs> yes, especially considering that they, you know, I think I was more outraged around the doll, the Django doll line um, than the movie itself. Like that just seemed to be in pretty poor taste. Yeah. Amatula, what do you think? Did, did the toys go too far? Were the dolls too much? Um, so I actually didn't see the movie yet. <laughs> um, just because I am pretty skeptical about it. Um, I'm not really into kind of slave movies, especially done by people that don't look like me. Um, it's a kind of, the processing is very different, um, and, it, and it feels very different the way that it comes out, just in the way that um, people can explain that process. Um, and I think that the one thing that is interesting about what I have heard about it from many, many people, essentially, um, is that the N-word is used a lot. But I think that we have to look at it in a way that's very, um, with kind of some variety, too, is that, like, the N-word in a huge connotation wasn't an awful thing back then to them, right? Like, that's real. And that's something that was used every day all the time, and it was something that we do look at now as being this awful thing that we shouldn't kind of call our brothers and sisters that, but then it was a very um, big thing, and, and still today it is. And I think that if we go into the movie or go into whatever situation understanding that that's what was happening there, there's a better understanding of how we can look at it and not just go in and be like, oh, this white man like created this movie. There's a bunch of wa- people walking around saying the N-word. Like, what does that really look like, and how do we understand that in a way that's more dignified rather than, like, he created this movie and it's so awful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I do want to be clear that this is not at all a movie for little children. Um, maybe older high schoolers, but certainly not any younger than that. And uh, I think, you know, for those parents with children who have seen the movie, um, older children who have seen the movie or who want to, uh, I think it's important that, that parents should be able to convey that message that, you know, this was a different America and, um, you know, this this is a story of, uh, you know, let's let's talk about black empowerment and black love and black strength in, in the context of the film, but also, you know, Jonathan, as you say, kind of in today's context as well and, and what that means, who's really benefiting from the telling of this story, uh, you know, Amatala, how do you think that it, it that students who have seen the movie or um, who want to see the movie will connect with this this story, if at all? Um, I think that at least the young people that I've spoken to that have seen it, like um, mostly college age students, like some of my really close friends, um, have connected in a way that has been very different from adults necessarily um, or older adults just because um, there obviously is a different kind of timeline between what slavery looks like to us and then what slavery looks like to people who are 50 years old or something of that sort, right? And, like, I think that we look at it as kind of like, oh, they shouldn't say that or kind of that processing, but also the um, going in with our eyes a tad bit more open to the idea of what this can look like. Me, on the other hand, not so much. (laughs) But many of my peers, I think, have gone in and very clear and very willing to look at and understand what can we take out of it, what can we understand from it. Um, But I've tried to explain, I think, that it's not necessarily a teaching moment, but kind of like an entertainment moment. And that's the one thing that I think is clear. It's an entertainment thing, not necessarily a teaching of what slavery was like or what it looks like to be a free slave or anything like that. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, moving on, let's talk about the Washington Redskins. Um, I have not been a fan of the team, and admittedly I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, so there wasn't room in my life for two for two teams. But um, also because of that name, you know, since RG3 has come on board as a quarterback, you know, I've been much more interested in the team and what they're up to, but I just can't root for the team. I don't like to publicly proclaim hatred for anything, but that name, um, Vincent Gray, mayor of Washington, D.C., had to eat his words recently after he presented the team with an ultimatum. If they wanted to move from their current stadium in the D.C. suburbs in Maryland and come back to D.C., they would have to change their name. Corporate interests and others who want the team back in in D.C. kind of went wild, and Gray had to back off of that statement. The Smithsonian recently held a day-long conference about this with several panelists, including Manly Begay, senior lecturer in the American Indian Studies Program at the University of Arizona, and a member of the Navajo Nation who remembered being called a dirty redskin when he was growing up. Jonathan, what do you think? Should the team change its name? Will it forever be subject to a never-win curse if it doesn't? Uh, That's funny. Um, Sure. Let's believe that one. (laughs) <laughs> I I think it is time. Um, if we we we've seen it happen in D.C. before, we had the Washington Bullets um, who decided to change their name because they felt like it was encouraging gun violence. And so I would think um, that we could come up with another name. I think that we don't lose anything in the legacy. I think it actually begins to right some wrongs that also are part of the history of the Washington Redskins and why a lot of uh, folk in the city are Dallas fans um, because, the, you know, the Redskins was one of the last teams to get black players on. And so it was, you know, kind of this cowboy stuff came on um, as a result of resistance to that idea. So there's a, you know, I think that only is a, uh, some justice um, and would probably break that curse. Natalie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with you, Allison. I mean, I think that, like, we have to be, it's, 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 well, first of all, it's a really incredible teaching moment um, mm-hmm. because of, you know, like, it gets to the heart of what this country is and what it was became, before it became the United States. And it's really an amazing opportunity to really have a dialogue about the history of this country and uh, stereotypes and, you know, finding ways to reconcile capitalism with, just human decency um, mm-hmm. and uh, respect for, you know, respect for the people who, who you know, the original uh, inhabitants of this country. So, you know, I, I, I do hope that they do change the names. I'm a bit cynical uh, about, about them <laughs> doing it. Yeah. But, you know, if, if nothing else, you know, I think this is an opportunity for teachers to get in the classroom and talk to, talk to students about the name and the controversy around so that at least they can be, you know, sort of like with any anything culturally that we, whether it's hip-hop, whether it's Django, or whether it's, you know, the name of a sports team, I mean, you have to give them a context to be able to understand what the, the debate is around it. And, you know, maybe you don't, maybe not everything is perfect, and maybe it's not a perfect world, but, you know, at least you plant some seeds and, and help, uh, you know, the coming generations to be a bit more tolerant and, and more understanding and respectful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amatula, what what are your thoughts about this idea of, of you know, the teachable lessons in this 
history that we're creating around names that are potentially very, very offensive, um, and and especially offensive to to those who were here first. Um, I think it's a very kind of like powerful movement, so to speak. Um, my grandmother is fully Cherokee um, Indian, and I think her analysis behind it essentially would be like, why, right? Like. Why Why would they call, you know, why would they call a team that? What does that look like? How does that feel like to people? Um, and I think there's kind of like this thought process behind it being a teaching moment, but also um, what does this look like for upcoming generations? Um, and then also what does it look like for um, young people to look at it and say, well, why was the name changed, right? Like there, there's obviously not a young person kind of like, conversation behind it that's saying, well, we don't want this to happen, but is it young people kind of spearheading this? And a lot of times when um, these kind of revelations happen, a lot of times young people are behind it, and and, mm-hmm. and there's this kind of connotation that it's wrong, um, and I think that it is a quite offensive name, <laughs> just kind of looking at it in, you know, in retrospect and, and thinking that um, maybe it does offend people and talking to the people who it could possibly offend, right? Like, we really need to look at that and talk to people and say, well, as someone who kind of is from the basis of this country and where it was built from, like, who who could this offend? Does it offend you? And if it does, we definitely do need to make that change, and we need to make mm-hmm. it because it's important to your culture and to kind of like just your being as a as a as a whole person and as a whole people. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the team itself has been resistant to this conversation. Even they they did not participate in the the conference at the Smithsonian. Um, they they have kind of over and over again asserted that this is actually to pay pay honor to um, American Indian people and Native American people. Um, and I, I think that there's something, um, of course, disingenuous in that. And um, even recently, you know, the, the team in carrying on um, a very small part of the conversation about the name, you know, pointed to, I think, a high school team that had the same name and as an example to say, look, you know, others are doing it. Um, But I think that, you know, it's important for them to think about taking the lead in the conversation and and being a professional organization um, with monetary reward and and other things tied to that name, I think, is very, um, it's difficult, and they really have to, take a much closer look and, and be willing to at least have the conversation about why the name is, is difficult for so many people to hear. Um, Jonathan, have you had this conversation at all with um, children that you've been working with or your own children? Uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and it seems, you know, they got it. Um, and But I think, uh, again, I, part of the challenge in this is um, – is to kind of the level of <laughs> genocide that's happened against Native Americans that they're not present, and uh, and making the being able to make the personal connection and what that means. And so you have the kind of the oppression analogy, you know, like if you know this is equivalent to being called the N word, um, and they get it, but at the end of the day, like you're kind of left with you know what 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 can I do about it, you know, <laughs> still wanting to. Uh, to like a team or to be, you know, so it's a yeah. hard conversation. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, let's move on again. Um, again, you can call 347-202-0911 with your own comments and questions for our guest today. I want to talk about Christopher Dorner, um, former LAPD officer who was killed last week after he killed four people during what some have called a reign of terror in Los Angeles, California. Officer Dorner was fired in 2008 after being accused of um, accusing his his uh, co-worker um, and partner of mistreating a um, a person that they were arresting. And I think, you know, it, it was in his online manifesto that he sent to news outlets that he really claimed that his actions were bringing attention to racism and corruption inside the LAPD. And this has some people calling him a hero. Over the weekend, protesters rallied outside of LAPD headquarters to object to police corruption and brutality. Let's listen to a clip of David D. on Democracy Now!, um, who David D. is a California journalist and activist talking about the Christopher Dorner situation. I think uh, what really has captured people's imagination is one that he has, uh, through his manifesto, is raging war against the L.A. Police Department. And I think for most people, it might seem to be an open and shut case in terms of how people's emotions would uh, side. But what you found is once you read the manifesto, it's either opened up old rooms or it's, uh, it's reaffirmed what people have long suspected or have experienced in terms of brutality. Um, I think what stands out for me and, and many of the people that I deal with is the fact that there are these troubling allegations and those things need to be further investigated, irregardless of what we feel about Dorner, uh, whether or not he's a psychopath or any of the words that they want to put on him. I'm really curious as to whether or not these allegations that he's raised, where he names dates, times, and places, and names, whether or not they actually check out. And I think that needs to be uh, really investigated above and beyond just the immediate scenario which uh, led to his firing, which was the dispute between his uh, sergeant, his supervising sergeant, uh, Teresa Evans. So I think certainly black America is used to situations that have uh, racial undertones. This is a case that has has taken those undertones and made them a part of the the overlying matrix. And um, you know, we have bystanders who were mistaken for Dorner and injured by police, um, and police warning people that if they look like Dorner, they should probably lay low for a few days until he was caught. Police hunting Dorner in the woods with their dogs and and guns drawn for days. Natalie, what do you think about? This, this the whole situation. Well, I mean, it's it's really a tragedy um, on so many levels, you know, because you had innocent people that were killed. I mean, I think that he raised like it, you know, we were we have you, know, you take it for what it is, and you he opened up, um, you know, a dialogue that was necessary um, to have. But you know, what I don't understand is some like. Even among some scholars and, you know, in some, like, leftist circles, you know, this idea that he's some sort of hero or, you know, likening him to Nat Turner. I mean, mm-hmm. that that police officer's daughter had nothing to do with that. I mean, he it's, it's like a very, um, you know, I don't understand how you can, you can support that or, or condone that or think that it's some sort of equated to some sort of slave rebellion, you know. So that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing that I, I just, I'd like to just, stamp out a lot of that crazy talk to me um, about him being a hero, 
you know, while, you know, of course, continuing in following this necessary dialogue that opened up around the police brutality. And also that said, too, like I was very troubled by the report of the police burning him out of his cabin. <laughs> you know, like I don't, like their behavior, I think somebody else brought up, he killed four people, they killed three. You know, like what what kind of sense does that make? And then, you, you know, and then you go and, um, and, and intentionally burn. I mean, that's not what we do as a country. Like we don't right. burn people out. Right. Jonathan, what do you think? How can how can advocates and others who have been criticizing the LAPD and other police officers and and racism within, you know, the ranks since well before the Rodney King beating, how can they utilize Christopher Dorner without creating a martyr out of him? Right. I I mean, I think it it lies in the in the ideal that um, you know, what what kind of white supremacy um racial hatred produces and it's the the hatred that it creates, the violence that it creates and it doesn't it doesn't have a place in our society. Um and I do think we do have to offer up a, a critique. I think it um around that he definitely is not um uh leading a slave revolt. No one was uh freed um as a result of his actions. Um but I, I think yeah that but and I think also figuring out the message that, because I think underneath it is that people, again, were having those experiences and were felt powerless. And so you saw somebody uh, take a swing, and um, while, you know, some people can uh, applaud that, um, it, I think there's figuring out other ways that we can fight. And, and again, we know that to be true. I mean, the, some of our work organizing uh, through the AJ has been looking at the school to prison pipeline, and particularly in LA, they have a, a, a huge problem with that, where they were uh, LAPD were actually giving kids tickets and citations for being late to school, um, and so you know, I, I, so young people experience that that heavy police state, and you know, want to be able to do something, but we have to figure out ways to to fight back effectively. Mm-hmm. Matula, is there a way for teachers and educators to take um, some some lessons from Christopher Dorner and what what we've seen happen in L.A.? Um, is there a way for them to communicate some positive messages to children in their care about about what we've seen? Um, I think there is. I think that without going into too much um, detail in questions about what happened, um, we're trying to make someone seem like a hero or someone seem like the bad guy. But especially because I don't think we know every single detail of what happened is what I've mm-hmm. noticed is kind of going through the process of looking at it over the last couple of um, days. I think there's a kind of a basis of understanding that violence is the problem, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the, the moral issue we're dealing with essentially. And so when we're able to have a conversation that's open and clear about violence, then we can get to the other things about, well, who was the hero in the situation and, and kind of like, what does that look like? I think violence as a whole is, is where we've stemmed all of this from. And when we kind of look at it and understand why it's happening, who it's happening to, why are so many young people dying, why are so many black people dying, just people of color or just people, human beings, then we can begin to have the conversation. So I think especially talking to younger people, um, it's harder to say, well, this person did this and this person did that, but rather to say, well, just in a classroom, you know, you don't hit anybody. Why? Because it hurts, right? And so mm-hmm. kind of having that conversation, that basis of a conversation about violence is important. Mm-hmm. 
I, th- I, th- I agree with you, and I, I also think that, you know, it is certainly an opportunity to think about as we talk about police in schools and, and increasing police presence in schools and kind of the default for children of color, you know, thinking about this in the context of the Dorner situation, um, the problem with that is that the the default mindset when it comes to children of color, black and Latino children in particular, is that they are criminals and that we have to um, basically make sure that they're acting right instead of be in the school to protect them as police officers and protect their interests as children, um, period. You know, And so I think that certainly some of the lessons and takeaways from, from this is that you know, it is certainly not at all okay to um, to murder innocent people in the name of some principle or belief that you hold. Um, what we can learn from this, however, is that we have to think very carefully before we, we ramp up security efforts because we have to be focused on changing mindsets before we, we put more police officers in schools. And that that's really, you know, to your point again, Jonathan, about you know increased security at schools. Um, so let let's talk about the State of the Union. I was really pleased to hear President Obama talk about early childhood education for every single child in this country, um, and I I am assuming that he means high quality education for um, every three- and four-year-old in this country. I think early childhood education, meaningful parental engagement, and meaningful diversity in schools, all of these are things that we know work to ensure that every child has access to a quality education and has the ability to achieve lifelong success. Head Start has been the source of some criticism lately, especially with the looming fiscal cuts that will cut Head Start programming by a significant amount. Jonathan, do you think that universities quality education is likely to happen? And if so, how do we avoid the stigma and difficulties that Head Start has faced? Oh, that's a great question. Now, <laughs> uh, That's a great question. I, I do think it is uh, an eventuality um, as the, as the, as uh, America continues to slip uh, or sees itself slipping uh, in the kind of international education, I think there will be more resources diverted to early childhood. We've seen that um, in state and local governments. Um, D.C. was uh, on its path to universal um, child care. So I think you'll see it roll across states um, as it makes more sense and as it produces results. Um, and so um, I'm not quite familiar with all of the, the, the issues and challenges around Head Start, um, but I do think that, um, you know, again, this opportunity for us to look at where we've done innovative stuff and and bring and bring that stuff and replicate that stuff as we look at Universal. Uh, like, how can we do it and do it differently and do it well? Mm-hmm. Natalie, what do you think about early childhood education for every kid? Um, I, I think like a lot of things um, that, you know, a lot of, I guess, policy positions uh, from the left, I mean, these are good ideas. I don't know that, I, I guess I'm a little bit cynical. I mean, we we didn't even get, we didn't truly get truly universal health care. Um, so I don't know that, you know, how far this is going to be, how far this is going to go, um, especially with this Congress. But one thing I did want to pick up on is on the State of the Union speech. Um, you know, I like to watch these speeches on Twitter because I get to you know, kind of interact with all the um, scholars and 
thinkers around all these issues, and, and you know, there was a lot of really great points that um, a friend of mine in New Orleans, Andre Perry, um, who teaches at Loyola, was bringing up, and that is, you know, where is the, where is the national conversation about educating uh, our prison population? You know, mm-hmm. um, where is the conversation about, um, you know, uh, you know, bringing, pe- bringing them back into society? Um, there's a lot, you know, there's, I think people like uh, Michelle Alexander really opened up a, a, like an amazing um, dialogue around the issue of that, you know, society is really, th- these are people that society has really thrown away and it's not helping us. Um, and so, you know, we'd like to see some, like, forward looking around, including, you know, the citizens that we have. Um, also, I saw, there, you know, there are a lot, a lot of us are sort of, you know, this whole, focus on STEM education. That was another one of Obama's um, comments that he was bringing up, but, you know, the need to increase that and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I just feel like we're getting really, like, one-track mind around what education is, you know, because because that seems like the thing now. Like, I don't know, sometimes it seems like we're kind of getting a little fatty, you know, and we're not kind of, you know, we're, we're our policies aren't really reflecting a value of, like, what Broadly, what education is, which is not job training, which is not chasing uh, what the private sector jobs that they say they need in the next 12 months. It's creating lifelong learners who are adaptable and who are able to, um, you know, be flexible enough to change careers many times. You know, this is the, this is the, the workforce of the future is going to have to be able to change careers. You know, they're going to have to be they're going to have to have a nice broad education. And so, I, I'd really like to see. President and fighting education policy uh, more tackle that issue as well. Mm-hmm. Amatula, what do you think about this idea? I, I think a lot of times we talk about early childhood education, um, and it's kind of a, a signal, I guess, if you will, that we believe that once a, a child has gotten to a certain point or is in a certain situation, then it's too late for them. We've given up, right? So if a, if a child has gotten to high school and is reading at a third grade level, it's really just too late, and, and that's all. We can't do anything more. Or for a child who is in a detention facility, um, you know, they've made choices and there's nothing we can do for them. Um, what do you think about that? This conversation around early childhood education and that being the focus. Um, I think that early childhood education is probably um, essentially the place to start um, in a lot of situations. Um, but I think also along the lines of what Natalie was saying, I am very skeptical about what that's going to look like. Right? Like, um, and working with Jonathan and. Um, you know, the Alliance for Educational Justice, our reality is that um, education needs to be transformed, not necessarily on a level of like here at this level or that age or this bracket, but really totally transformed in every age dimension possible, right? Because it's essential that every single young person, every single student has access to what's important, not just early childhood, right? Like not just high school. Um, We don't want young people having to have a third grade reading level at the age of 17 and in high school. It seems absurd to me that that's even possible with the way that we run our country, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we have all of these kind of like implications about what we're going to do with this and that. We're in everybody else's business, but we can't educate our own young people. That seems absurd to me, right? And so I think 
there's something to be looked at also on the level of like, yes, we love Obama and we love that, you know, he's taking this kind of step forward, but who is he talking to about this? Is he talking to people like me and Jonathan and Natalie and you, Allison? Is he talking to people who know these situations? Is he talking to people who are clear about what this feels like to be in public schools and to be in schools that are not transformative? Does he know what young people are struggling through in early childhood education? Has he talked to four- and five-year-olds to understand why they can't read, why they can't say they're ABCs? Like, what does that look like? And where is their kind of like their processing behind it? Where are they trying to go with this? And that's where I think we need to kind of step in and be like thought for a second and try and figure out where they're going with this. Because a lot of times I think um, when it does become this idea of politics, we are not able to have a basis for what's important to the people on the ground and what's important to um, grassroots organizing as a whole and what that looks like for us and how these policies will change because a lot of times there are great things that come out of these policies, but how they're put into practice becomes awful things. And young people and adults and parents and everybody ends up kind of having the backhand to that, and it really is awful. Um, and so I think it's important to look at that in a way that's not just through the policy but through, like, what is it, how does it affect um, real people's lives and what does that look like. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I think that's a, a great segue into the next topic, which is um, this idea of expulsions from especially charter schools here in D.C. Uh, Emma Brown of the Washington Post recently covered the disproportionate amount of expulsions from D.C.'s charter schools. D.C. charter schools ex over the last three years expelled 676 students from school, um, and expulsion is, you know, there, there's no chance to return to that school. That, that's the end of the line um, for, for that child in that school. And that's compared with D.C. public schools, the traditional public schools, uh, who expelled 24 students from school. Um, the, the only response, really, that I have seen from or about charter schools um, related to this story is that they've said, you know, DCPS, DC public schools should be able to expel ch children also, um, which I think is not the right <laughs> tack to take, of course. Um, you know, I think that when you think about DC and, and um, these, these institutions coming into D.C. to serve D.C. residents and to serve D.C. students, that should be their mission first. And um, I think a lot of these organizations are very mission-driven in, in the missions that they've written outside of the, the world of D.C. and that they're now trying to impose on uh, D.C. children. Natalie, what are your thoughts about this? Oh, my God. How much time do we have, Allison? <laughs> <laughs> I have so – I mean – the whole thing for me is that, um, you know, it's it's just easy, like, you know, it's, I think that, again, just opening up a conversation around um, what an education is and what discipline is. Um, you know, discipline is like really, you know, to me, discipline is um, being focused and, and, and consistently doing work and putting in effort toward a goal, you know, and you know, when you when you're disciplining a child, it, it's it's like you're 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 really teaching them. You know, if they're not doing appropriate behavior, you're teaching them like they're children. Like that's the point of them being in school is that if they already knew how to do this stuff and they already knew how to behave in the world, there will be no need for them to be in school. So I think that educators need to be do, going about the business of educating and 
you know, we, we, there's no safety net for the children. I mean, once you, the, you know, the easiest thing to, for uh, our, any school operator to do is to get rid of the problem children. That makes their lives easier. It makes it easier for the teachers. It makes it, you know, it's just, it, it helps them reach their numeric goals and their data goals. And, you know, they lose focus on what the purpose of them being there is. And, you know, my whole problem with D.C. and, you know, and a lot of the way, well, really the whole concept of what the way charters work is their whole mantra is just autonomy. They get to do whatever they want to do. And that means that, you know, the charter board, the only response that I've seen from the charter board is that they have argued that they are private and they don't have, they actually don't have to engage in any due process so they basically can take the money, and there's no – they don't have to actually be accountable for what happens to the to the students. And I think that in order for the the, the positive gains of the charter movement to continue, um, they're going to have to reconcile that. They're going to have to be able to be answer – they're going to have to answer to somebody for what they're doing, you know, in the name of these children. Jonathan, I know that the Alliance for Educational Justice does a lot of work in D.C. advocating on behalf of children who have been kicked out of school or gently nudged out of school in a lot of um, uh, charter school situations um, and, and dealing with due process hearings from the traditional public schools. What is your thought about this, what's happening? Uh, it's a big I told you so. I know so <laughs> many parents in D.C. who are like, Finally, who you know, been telling the story. It's been anecdotal. They've denied it. And it probably feels really good to finally have empirical evidence to what we've known to be true, um, that, you know, charter schools enroll massive amounts of our young people and then um, push them out, counsel them out, expel them out uh, in this crazy form of kind of educational selection that happens um, so that they have kind of, you know, what, what's best or, you know, what fits their program and then are able to talk about the results. And it really is, you know, for us it's about this larger, you know, corporatizing of education, making it private, um, and young people now um, not becoming students but becoming test scores and kind of these educational commodities and this uh, education for profit. Um, and it really um, – for our sense speaks to, you know, like young people have human rights, and education is a human right, and um, and and that's part of what our, our work is here. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're not – yeah, and so I think it is for us to, again, figure out. And a lot of the work that young folk like Amantala have been leading have been uh, offering solutions to those problems, um, particularly their work around the National Student Bill of Rights as this idea of kind of guarantee all young people um, wherever they are in the country to a quality education and certain rights underneath that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Amatala, what do you think about um, this idea of charter schools being independent yet publicly funded and so not really accountable to anyone and, and can um, say that their mission can't accommodate certain children or certain profiles of children? Um, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that overall we have to ask the question of why are charter schools existing, essentially, right? So there's this kind of like idea that public schools weren't working or weren't working and or they didn't provide the needs of certain young people or whomever. And so they came up with these 
charter schools, whatever. And a lot of them actually in the beginning seemed to be created by people that were in our communities and people that were just really good and the public schools uh, weren't doing what it, need to, what it needed to do in order to support the young people in the community. And I think they've transformed into what we now see as a bunch of, like, for-profit places that are funded by the same money that we're supposed to fund public schools with. And so what is that, like, how do we look at that and kind of have an analysis for how does that affect young people, what does that look like, um, and, and, and how does that feel to know that, you know, you have to move on to something kind of greater and send your kid to this amazing charter school that actually cares nothing about your young person, right? Like, and so I think there's a process, too, behind, you know, what Jonathan is saying is very essential. Young people in this country, unfortunately, don't have a right to education, but we do have a human right to it, and that's where it's kind of confusing this conflict between these two things, and that's where, you know, it's important to look at, you know, the National Student Bill of Rights as kind of a platform for understanding there's not just this aspect of charter schools versus public schools or whatever, but that young people need education in order to succeed in anything. Um, rather, it's, you know, the smallest thing to the largest thing, it's a it's a need, and it's a basis for understanding um, how we guide ourselves in this life. I think that um, it's important to look at charter schools not in the most horrible way, but look at why are they doing what they're doing, who is in charge of these schools, who's creating this idea behind charter schools are better than public schools and we might as well send our kids there. Like, what does that look like and how do we find a root cause for this rather than trying to sift through the little things that come through? I mean, I think in terms of the expulsions, it's like, well, you can expel people in public schools. So what is very different about you guys, right? Like, what does that look like? How how are you very different if you're going to expel a bunch of our young people just as much? We might as well send them back to the schools that weren't working instead of you stressing them out in charter school. Like, how does that feel? And what does that look like? Right. And, you know, the, this idea that you and Jonathan both mentioned that, um, you know, the San Antonio versus Rodriguez case for, in 1973, the Supreme Court case that basically said that, you know, there is no right under the federal United States Constitution to a public education, uh, which then left that to the states. So the states now have power to administer public education and are doing so, and this is why you see such varied results and um, landscapes in terms of charter schools uh, cropping up all over the place in some places, in some jurisdictions, and then other jurisdictions haven't allowed that. Um, and, you know, in, in D.C., I, I think that you're, you're, you've hit the nail right on the head, Amatula, in, in that we are at a very critical juncture because I think um, at first the idea of charter schools was that the community could decide and, and community members who were familiar with D.C., who were familiar with the children of D.C. and really wanted to serve the children of D.C., um, could create a school and an, and an environment for D.C. children that would be uh, nurturing and that would be really creative in some of the strategies that were employed to educate children academically, but also in terms of behavior and, and incorporating behavior curricula as well. And I think we're at a critical juncture because we've grown to the point now that we have uh, national charter management organizations and others who are kind of franchising these charter schools all over the country who have who are coming into D.C. with a point to prove. And that point is, first, that charter schools work, and, that, and second, that their model works. 
um, rather than kind of first being being um, focused on serving the children of D.C., regardless of where what their background is or what the 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 circumstances are that the, the children face. Um, and so, you know, the the crossroads where we are is that we can kind of get back to that community focus and we can really make sure that the charters and the D.C. public schools are collaborating and working with one another. Um, or we can go, you know, continue to really employ these um, national organizations and, and invite them in. Even, you know, the Charter School Board has been, been very welcoming of these these franchises, these charter franchises, and, and uh, we can continue to invite them in without exploring closely what they are doing to D.C. children. And, I, you know, I think that we have a very important decision to make as a community, as a D.C. community, and this is, you know, national on a national level. We see it in New Orleans and Philadelphia. You know, we have some really important choices to make about how we are educating the children that we are supposed to be serving. Um, and, you know, th we have to be careful about that. Natalie, what do you think? How do we begin to have conversations and to force, you know, the, the public charter school board to sit down with CCPS to talk about what, what works for all of our children? Well, I mean, I think the, the first thing is that, in, you know, part of the problem in D.C. is that the policy is really weighted toward charter schools. So they they are, you know, if you – if you have an idea, whether, whether you're a mom-and-pop local or you're one of these national chains, if you have an idea and you convince them to, to let you open a school, they just let you open a school. Like, there's no um, – so it, it, it's definitely, like, you know, they have sort of a blank check on that side, and then DCPS is in the public side, the traditional public side is really contracting because they don't have the blank check, so all they can do is really close school. So until they sort of change that policy where – um, you know, they allow them to sort of stabilize, you're you're just going to have a 100% uh, privatized system. Um, and, you know, I, and I don't think that we um, sort of appreciate, like, what the consequences of that is. You know, you really lose control. And, and you know, I think what's really frustrating with, for me is that there is so much that charters have innovated. They've come up with many different innovations and there's many different things that they've tried that are working for some kids. But you, all you know is really it's just all anecdotal. Like we really don't know what combination of best practices. Um, you know, we don't know what they're doing and, and, and to the degree that it is working, what's working about it and what we can learn. Like we're not really treating them as learning um, opportunities. So, I mean, I've, I really believe that they should, there should really, in places like D.C., there probably should just be some, a moratorium where we just sort of stop the churning for a second and actually figure out what is happening. How many people are getting to graduation? You know, and even, you know, even if there is not a, uh, it's not a right to an education, I mean, I think that taxpayers do have a right not to be defrauded. And if you're giving money for a child to be enrolled and that child is expelled after two months and they don't get an education, that is fraud. You know, and so, like, there has to be, you know, we have to be sort of creative in figuring out, um, you know what the bigger picture is, and how we can get to the um, we we can get to the point where we're actually learning from what all these experiments are. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, I, I want you to take us out on a, a a note of uplift as we celebrate Black History Month. You have done some really amazing work around um, empowering 
student voice and empowering youth around the country to um, advocate on the, their own behalf and advoca advocate on behalf of of those who um, who maybe can't speak um, or don't feel empowered to speak. Will you just talk to us about the work that you do and about some of the incredible things that you have seen from from young black people, young black children? Um, yeah, I, I think I have uh, one of the best jobs in the world as national coordinator for the Alliance for Educational Justice. I get to work with 20 of the um, baddest youth organizing groups in the country and probably in the world. I'm really trying to change um, the education system, and um, it's I just can't even begin to talk about Amantala and the work that they're doing in in, uh, in Boston with the um, with BYOP. Um, and one of my favorite groups to really talk about is the Baltimore Algebra Projects um, up in Baltimore and the work that they've done um, helping to shape this NSBR stuff, uh, this idea of, of education as a constitutional right. Um, and they're thinking around it. It's really forward. And every time I encounter it, I'm always reminded of Ella Baker and her idea of radical in, in terms of uh, people devising, turning and facing the system and devising ways to make it serve their ends. And I feel like uh, they young people do that really amazingly well just naturally, and we've seen it in our organizing. And that's what made it really exciting to, um, to be involved in that. I think a lot of times people uh, struggle around the future, um, but what I see and what I get to touch um, is really, uh, really amazing. I'm always really excited um, to see what's happening. I even uh, got a, oh, while we were on a tweet coming out of uh, Denver and how they, they recently just made the, the, the Washington Post around some of the work that they've been doing to uh, get some agreements to keep police out of schools at a time when, you know, the country is going in the opposite direction, and that work is being led and anchored by young people. So um, I think the future is really bright for us. We just got to keep going. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think, you know, hats off to Denver. I think that they have done some really incredible work with uh, the Advancement Project and others there, um, Padres, Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, um, around really incorporating student voice and not in a, a token way, but in really kind of substantively listening to students and community members and uh, incorporating their their insights in their plans and development. I think, you know, uh, kudos to them. Um, Dr. Natalie Hopkinson is a Washington, D.C.-based journalist, book author, and fellow with the Interactivity Foundation. She is Natty Rankins on Twitter. Jonathan Stiff is the National Coordinator at the Alliance for Educational Justice in Washington, D.C. Find him on Twitter as L. Jimadari. And Am Amachala Mervin is a young adult leader with the Boston Youth Organizing Project at BYOP.org. You can also find her on Facebook. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, I had fun. Allison. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on current events and how they are impacting the black community. Go forth and share. Have a wonderful week. Join us next Tuesday, February 26th, for a superintendent's roundtable. We'll cover a variety of topics with superintendents from all over the country. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for joining us.